Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, good morning. How are you guys doing? 81 degrees here, 87% humidity, I think. I haven't really checked it, I'm just guessing. Probably less. Um, yeah, 83. Great day. A little overcast. We had rain again, so we're finally getting the rain. We're supposed to get rain every day here. There's been years here in September where you could hardly go outside. It would be raining so hard every afternoon. You had to plan your day. Just pouring out of the street in front would be, you could go down it in a kayak, but uh, not this year. Not this year at all. Okay, we are over in Isaiah 41. If you want to look for that in the meantime, just to brighten the mood for the day and get us started off right, we will look for our dad jokes. What kind of music do planets listen to? <laughs> Neptunes. <laughs> of course. So, Isaiah, I'm getting a lot out of Isaiah. I don't know about you, but this book is, is rich. It is very, very rich with so much that it really applies to us in our day more than, in, in one sense, any other generation because it uh, not only speaks of the coming of Christ, but the second coming as well and the establishment of his kingdom. There's so much here. Uh, but we get so much history as well as understanding God prophetically telling Israel what was coming before it did to warn them. And so we pick up all the lessons from that. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God for that, that very thing. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do pray as we go through your word. You would help us to learn these lessons as Israel was so defiant and so hard to listen to your word. May we not be the same. May we understand that these things are written so that we might have life and we might understand and not make the same mistakes and be able to glean the truth, God, for our own benefit and our family. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 41. Isaiah encouraged is the title. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust in his sword. As the wind-driven chaff is blown, he pursues them, passing on in safety. By a way he had not been driven, not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the, saying of the soldering, It is good, 
and he fastened it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remote parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 11, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be ashamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them, and I will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away, and the storm will scatter them, but you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. The afflicted and the needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The King of Jacob says, Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. I have aroused one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon or mortar, even as a potter, treads clay, who has declared this from the beginning that we might know, or from former times that we may say he is right. Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. Verse 27, formerly I said to Zion, behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. But when I look, there was no one, and there was no counselor among them who, if I ask, 
can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. Chapter 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and he will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth with its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell on them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices and the wilderness where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior, and he will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. The blindness of the people. Verse 14, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and the hills and wither all their vegetations. I will make their rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind away by the way they will not know. In past they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them, the rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be utterly put to shame. Who trusts in idols, who say to molten images, You are our God. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me or so blind as the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for his righteous sake to make the law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or are hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. Who among you will give ear to this? 
who will give heed and listen hereafter. Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And in whose ways they are not willing to walk? And whose law they did not obey? Who has poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle? And it set him aflame around, yet it did not recognize it. And it burned him, but he paid no attention. These two chapters are quite interesting because we're really, really zeroing in on God's ability to tell us the future before it happens. And I imagine Isaiah must have been an amazing experience to have these visions because he's living 150 years, I believe, before Cyrus comes from the east and he tacks down from the north and he's going to come and conquer over Babylon and he's the one that's going to allow the Jews to go home and build the temple, uh, rebuild the temple. And he's prophesying here. God is saying that he's going to raise up this, this person from the, from the east. This, this king is going to come in and, and just decimate all the other nations. And he's going to come. But he see, sees, it's interesting, there's these predictions that Jerusalem will be saved from the Assyrians and the near prophetic. Uh, but when Cyrus comes... He's going to release them from Babylon. So you have all of these, these prophecies that kind of pile up on top of each other because we have previous chapters say, no, 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 Assyria's not going to come in. 185 wiped out in one night by the angel. That was prophesied. Isaiah told Hezekiah, don't worry about it. That's, God's got your back. Uh, but then he says, but because of you guys, you, especially you kings, continually sinning against the God and following after these false gods, and of course we, Isaiah gets into this, that has no power. I'm a jealous God. I will not let my glory go to any other God. Because of that, and we t- he talks about this, that who is my servant and who is more blind and more deaf than my servant Israel? That they have rejected me and they continually are turning their back on me. He says, because of this, you guys are going to go into captivity. But then he prophesies the coming of Cyrus and Cyrus is going to let them go free and go back and rebuild the temple. Why? Because it is God's will that he's using these nations for the message that he brought through his messengers, which was Israel initially, to bring the message of the need, and we're going to get that Romans 7 now, the need for the law, the need to know that we're sinners, to need to, to understand that we need a Savior. And so with all that, then we can jump into the next chapter in 42, where he says, and I'm going to bring my servant, the Messiah. See, his servant is Israel, but it's, uh, then it becomes the Messiah. And uh, a bruise reed, he will not bend. I can't remember. Uh, smoldering wick, he won't put out. He's coming as the, the suffering servant. He's coming in meekness. He's not coming as the conquering king. This is the prophecy. He's not coming with the mighty sword to conquer over the land. He's coming as the lamb of God who is not going to put up a fight militarily. He's going to offer himself as a propitiation for the world. So he is going to come for this. So we have the glorious prediction of him coming. And, and, and yet, this is all relating back to God's challenge to the other gods, to the nations around, and of course to these apostate kings in, in Israel and Judah, 
and saying, oh, what about you guys? Can you guys predict the future? Can you tell what's going to happen before it happens? Let me show us, show us and, and either be fearful or, or glorious, whatever you can do, do it and show us that you do have the ability to predict the future. If not, then listen up, humanity. I am the only God that can tell you the end from the beginning. I know I can tell you your future before it happens. And this is why Isaiah is so amazing because he gets so, so many of these prophetic visions of the future to come. And this is why we see it used in the New Testament so much. These quotes from Isaiah over and all over the place. Paul takes, well, uses them all over the place. And, and so we have a more sure word of prophecy. We know that we can trust what he says, which is why when we jump into the book of Revelation and we live now, we go, boy, I need to listen. I need to get my head out of the sand and listen to what the word of God is saying because we have that same situation where we're being told our future in advance and there's still so many people in churches that go, uh, I don't know if I'm into that prophetic stuff and I'm just going to work on my 401k and retire and find a place on the house in the mountains or on the beach and uh, just you know live out my retirement, enjoy it. And all of the prophetic signs are saying, uh, I wouldn't do that. He's coming very soon. We need to be about the Father's business and we need to take the, our last days on this earth as not being blind and deaf to his coming and to those that are in this world that are sick and dying spiritually and need to hear. This is, a, this is really uh, applicable, and hopefully we're kind of gleaning that as we go through these uh, all of these prophetic books, especially right now in the Revelation. Romans chapter 7, Believers United to Christ. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those of you who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? But the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, we're at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the command came in, sin became alive and I died. 
And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandments, sin would become utterly sinful. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want... I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So again, Paul, the lawyer, likes to give us uh, every single detail, the theological implications of everything. And so it can sound to us at times a bit confusing and almost almost like he's saying that he's not responsible. The devil made him do it, and he has no responsibility when he sins. It's just sin in him, and he becomes sin himself or something. So I want to read this just because I thought it was applicable. It helped me. When Paul says uh, we are no longer the law, then why then was the law given? It was not given as a scheme of salvation, but as a preparatory measure to educate man to see his need of a savior to make us know the difference between right and wrong not until we realize our helplessness is the desire for the and appreciation of a savior struggle between our cardinal and spiritual natures which is the theme we were just talking about 14 through 25 we wonder if this is a picture of paul's own inner struggle because in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he says he knew nothing against himself, yet he must have felt a powerful impulses or felt powerful impulses within his nature against which he had a continuous desperate struggle, else he would never have written these words. His unspeakable gratitude to Christ for deliverance from that against which he felt himself powerless reminds one of Luther's unbound joy as he realized all at once that Christ could do for him. What he had vainly struggled to do for himself. This is an illustration of the power of the law on the earnest soul, depressed by inability to live up to it, the relief found in Christ. So the the idea is they're they're finding that that the law was given and it was good, it was spiritual, 
and it was to help them, guide them to do right and live before God. But they were depending on it to bring them into righteousness, that, that everything that they would do would be right and acceptable by God, blameless and forgiven. And so they're, we would say, saved, liberated. But they're finding out that they, they could not. They, their body of sin kept wanting to sin. They had a sinful nature. Their spirit, in the spirit, and we know this, we all deal with this, wants to do right. But there is that innate nature that wants to look at that picture that we shouldn't look at or, or go drink something or smoke something or whatever that shouldn't. And he says, I, I, I see this struggle. And I see this, these two natures at war within themselves. And, and basically says, when I, I see this nature over here, it's not my new nature. It's my old nature. And I realize that that old nature is still present in me. So, and I don't want to put words in Paul's mouth, but he's basically saying, I realize that I'm, I'm at war with the old man, would be the way I I'm, would put it. He, he's not going to try to deny responsibility. He knows if he sins, it's him sinning, but he realizes that there's the old nature that we inherited. And so he sees himself as dead to himself, alive in Christ. Or when he says it's no longer I the one I'm doing it, but sin that lives in me, he's realizing that I am new in Christ. I am born again, but I'm at war with the old nature. So it's the old nature that's doing it. That's, um, I don't consciously want to sin against my God. I realize that I have to crucify that old man that nature within me. So it's no longer I am doing it, but, but sin who reigns in my mortal body is the, the idea that um, he, he knows he's, he's, if he sins, he's going to be held accountable, he's got to repent. But he's being very philosophical and theological in his view of the two natures. So he says, I'm trapped in this body of sin, and who will deliver me? That the body, our, our mortal bodies, which has a sin nature. And then he praises, thanks be to Jesus Christ. Because in him, now, he can be forgiven. And, and I, I think he means that. I think he means that, that he, he will rescue him in his flesh from the law of sin. So when he sins, he can go before him and ask for forgiveness, and God will make him new. He will forgive him. And he will confess it, and he will forgive him and make him new again. So this is how he's released and, and forgiven in the body of sin. Uh, it's, you know, one of those things that we all identify with. Romans 7, that second part is just really, how many times have we read it? And I've read it and go, man, that's me. And we don't want to do wrong, but, but we, we do, and, and, but we, knew, we know the, the only thing that saves us out of all of this is Jesus Christ. And when we are liberated out of our bodies, then we have the permanent newness in the new body. We are released ultimately from that old man that must be crucified every day, the body of sin. Okay, I hope I explained that right. I'm not, I'm not the theologian Paul was, but I, I like to try and put it in words that at least I can try and understand because these are quite deep Deep theological thoughts. Charles Spurgeon now, for thou wilt light my candle, Psalm 1828. It may be that my soul sits in darkness, and if this be of a spiritual kind, no human power can bring me light. 
blessed be God, he can enlighten my darkness and at once light my candle, even though I may be surrounded by a darkness which may be felt, yet he can break the gloom and immediately make it light around me. The mercy is that if he lights the candle, none can blow it out, neither will it go out for lack of substance, nor burn out is of itself through the lapse of hours. The lights which the Lord kindled in the beginning are shining still. The Lord's lamps may need trimming, but he does not put them out. Let me then, like the nightingale, sing in the dark. Expectation shall furnish me with music, and hope shall pitch the tune. Soon I shall rejoice in a candle of God's lighting. I am dull and dreary now. Perhaps it is the weather, or bodily weakness, or the surprise of a sudden trouble. But whatever has made the darkness, it is God alone who will bring the light. My eyes are unto him alone. I shall soon have the candles of the Lord shining about me. And further on, in his own good time, I shall be where they need no candle, neither light of the sun. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. First thing I thought of there when I was reading that was Paul. Road to Damascus. If God puts you in a darkness, man, it's, it is a spiritual darkness and none can, can come in and do anything about it. God blinded him for those three days to show him what his life was in the law. It was spiritual darkness. What his whole life was, he was not walking in the light, nor could he see the light. He was, he was blind, leading the blind. But when God gave him light and told that brother to go pray for him and uh, remove the scales from his eyes, after that, none could make him blind again. No one could take away the light. His candle was lit, and he burned brightly for the Lord. And he was a powerhouse. And that's what is uh, the comparison for us. Once God has lit that light in you, no one can extinguish it. You're his. The light is within you. The power of the Holy Spirit resides in you. So we should let it shine. Let's pray. Thank you for the blessing of your word, Father, and your continued majesty that we behold every morning as we, we come into your presence. It's we become accustomed to understanding you're the God who knows the future and the God who works through the weakness and frailty of our bodies, but we don't appreciate it as much as we should or marvel at it moment by moment as, as we dwell upon your, your holiness and your goodness to us. So, Father, thank you for the way you have reached through time and done these marvelous and mighty deeds through Israel and through your, through your Son and have brought us to the place we are today. That we're on this earth, God, and we want to stand in awe of you. You are holy, we are sinful, but you wash us and you make us new and you're ready to pour out your mercy on us if we come to you and, and ask for it and are, and are sincere about it and know that you took our place on the cross, that you have taken our punishment. So we... We joyfully, God, come before you this morning. Thank you for the mighty deeds that you have done for us. And because of that, God, we want to lift up those who are hurting, those who are seeking you, looking for help, those that don't understand why they're going through what they're going through, that people that have found out that they're sick, people have lost someone that they love very, very much, and they don't understand. Help them, God, 
understand that your hand of mercy and grace is there and that it is working even when we don't understand why. So empower my brothers and sisters this morning to just behold your glory and put their trust in you. Even when there's no understanding for themselves to know. And we will ask God for your continued healing on everyone who's just come out of the hospital and those about to go into surgery here, healing of their bodies. And God, healing of those that are brokenhearted, which are uh, not understanding why that there's so much evil in the world, so many things going wrong around us. But God, you know that it's all part of the plan, that you're coming back soon. So we need to take our stand. We need to be firm, knowing that you are the God of our salvation and that you have everything in control. So we thank you for this beautiful day, God, and we give you all honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Let us know if anyone new is joining us. uh, Send us a hello And make sure you invite somebody to jump online with us every morning as we worship the Lord together at this time. See you tomorrow. Bye.